right, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. All right, if you could hear me say shh, you guys are awesome. Uh, my name is Sean Tom Bagahan. Don't worry if you can't pronounce the last name. I know I'm half Filipino, half white, so I just look Mexican. Uh, so that last name is Filipino, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, I know I'm at camp, uh, which means that we're supposed to get you guys all saved, right? Uh, or recommit, something like that. No, today I'm not talking to you uh, as if you're non-believers today. I'm talking to you guys the same way that I would talk to my church. Is that okay? All right, good. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say a lot, and it's okay if you don't gather all of it. We're going to get through as much of this as we can, and, uh, and hopefully you guys get some nuggets that are useful for you about answering objections to the gospel. So uh, don't, how many of you guys have been kind of intimidated a little bit if you are going to share the gospel with someone who you know is not living for Jesus? All right. How many of you are intimidated because you feel they're going to have questions or objections that you're just not equipped to answer. Yeah, that's why I think so many of us are, this is why this kind of a talk has so many people pulled into this. I, I just want you guys to, uh, to, to feel confident um, and not afraid because as witnesses, we're not supposed to necessarily have all the answers. It's okay if you don't have all the answers. I'm not going to deal with all of the different apologetic, theological, ph philosophical, scientific arguments because to be honest, you're not going to need them most of the time. And it's not necessary, especially when you're sharing the gospel with people who have deep pains on the inside. A lot of times those arguments and those objections are coming from a deeper place than just the mind. It's coming from the heart. And so I don't want you guys to feel intimidated or feel unnecessary to have all the answers. That's not the purpose of today's talk. Uh, remember, we are witnesses. When you think about a, a trial or a courtroom, what does a witness do? They're supposed to testify. That's it. They testify to what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. They're not supposed to be the prosecuting attorney with all of the evidence and all of the great argumentation. So as a witness for Christ, you don't have to have all of the answers. You just have to have an experience with Jesus and testify to that experience. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. And I want you guys to leave encouraged and not intimidated, even if you don't have all the answers. So we are going to talk about how do you start answering objections, and, and in order for us to do that, we have to start with understanding how to engage our culture. You have to remember that all objections and all questions are going to come from your cultural understanding, from your cultural context. There's, there's different cultures, and they're going to have different objections. Let me give you an example. In, in Western culture, and in, in, that's our culture in America, we're going to have issues or objections like how could a loving God send people to an eternal hell? How many of you guys have heard that objection? How could a loving God create people and send them to an eternal hell? Well, that's, that's a question that's coming from our culture. If you go to a different cultural context, they don't have that same issue. If you go to like ancient Israel, which is when the Bible was written, their objection would, would be how could a just and holy God just forgive sins and not send people to hell. You see, it's the same issue of God sending or not sending, but because of the cultural context, the objection is going to come from a different place. So we all interpret truth 
which is from the word of God, we all interpret truth through a lens. Everybody, you know, th there's people that are like, oh, I, I, I'm of this denomination or I'm of this church and, and I just read the, the Bible. It's like, no, nah, everybody reads the Bible through the lens of their culture. And so we have to understand what our culture believes. And as faithful stewards or managers, as faithful messengers and witnesses of Christ, we have to know the lenses through which the world, and including ourselves, are looking at the truth of the scripture. You guys with me? Good. All right. So engaging our culture. When, when I say the word missions, missions, uh, just anybody, what, what comes to mind? When you go on a missions trip or missions, what comes to mind? Far away place. Going to a foreign land. When I say the word missionary, what comes to mind? Serving for the Lord. So someone who serves the Lord, usually in some faraway place. So I'm going to tell you about a friend of mine. So a friend of mine, he, uh, he, he's a business owner, and he ended up packing up his wife, his, whole, his kids, and they went to a foreign country, and it was a predominantly Muslim country. And the goal was to engage Muslims with the gospel. So the way you do that, you don't just go out and hand out a bunch of gospel tracts and, and preach on the streets. It's illegal. You'll get in trouble. You'll get arrested. You'll get persecuted. So what do they do as missionaries? They have to go and, and get a job. So he went to this foreign land. He got a job. He understood the language. He understood the culture. He wanted to learn what was their mindset, what was their work ethic, what was their worldview, how were they viewing the world so that he could understand and relate with the people? What were their idols? Who were the influencers in their culture? What did they do for fun? He has to learn all these things. He did this for two years, just learning the culture before he was able to properly engage the culture with the gospel. So he built relationships with people. He was out in society. And what he noticed is that God was already doing stuff in the city. And so his question was, what is God doing in the city? Who is he doing it through? And how can I partner with what God is doing in the city by reaching these people through their cultural context? And so here's the thing. All of us are missionaries. If you're a note taker and you're taking points, writing points, the first point is all Christians are missionaries. When we think of a missionary, we think of these crazy weirdos who go overseas and do incredible work for the Lord, and, and they're, they're serving, they're preaching the gospel, but the Bible says in Matthew 24, I'm sorry, in Matthew, yeah, Matthew 24, 14 says, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all nations as a testimony to me, Christ, and then the end will come. Some people are waiting for the rapture, some people are waiting for the end to come, but Jesus says that this gospel has to be proclaimed in all nations first. And then in Matthew 28, he gives all of us, Christians, a commission. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. The, the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose of Christians is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and make disciples. If the whole purpose was, hey, Guess what? Jesus died for your sins before. One day you're going to go to heaven, but between now and then, try not to sin so much. That's a pathetic, weak, powerless Christianity if there is no relevance for today. If the only purpose that God saved you for was so that one day you could be in heaven with him, then the moment you gave your life to God, you'd be in heaven. But that didn't happen. He left us here. Why? To fulfill a mission. And so we have to think of ourselves all as missionaries. And so in the same way that my friend who went to this foreign land, learned the culture, learned the language, learned the customs, engaged and interacted with the people, built relationships so that he could proclaim the gospel, 
we need to do the same thing in our cultural context. Not all of you guys are called to be sent to some foreign land, even though some of you might be. Most of us are called to a particular context. You live in cities, you live in towns here in, in the US, and so you have to be aware, what, is, what, what do the people in my city believe? What are, wh who are the influencers? What are they into? What, what do they do for fun? What is their view and ethic of work? Right, so you have to think of yourself as, if I were a missionary sent to a foreign land, how would I do it? Well, how can I do that here where I am today? Second point, not only are we all missionaries, we must know and understand our culture's ideologies. So I want everybody here to be thinking of yourself as a missionary. That's not just for the crazy weirdos that go overseas. That's for you. That's for me. Like I told you guys over there, I am a uh, creative entrepreneur. I own a creative agency. We do design, content, marketing, branding, and it's not all just for Jesus. We, we work with coffee companies. We work with nonprofits, for-profits. But what am I doing? I'm engaging with my city. I'm working with influencers in my community. I'm understanding who my community is so that I can preach the gospel and build relationships with them. I'm also a church planter and a missionary to my city. And in order for me to properly do that, I have to know and understand the ideologies that my culture believes. There's this crazy story in Acts 17. So if you brought your Bibles and you want to turn to Acts chapter 17, this is after the Apostle Paul has, like, in his mind, this missionary journey to where he's going to go and proclaim the gospel all over Eastern Asia. Uh, and, and what happens was he gets persecuted. People start uh, uh, attacking him, and he gets split up from his missionary team. And so he did not plan any of this. He, he got separated from his missionary team. They sent him off to this place called Athens. And in Acts 17, starting in verse 16, he didn't plan this. He's here in Athens. He says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for his team in, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So what did he do? So he reasoned in the synagogues, both with Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. This was not Paul's missionary plan. He did not intend to be in Athens. He got separated from his team. Now he finds himself there, and he was greatly distressed. Why? Because he looks up and he sees, man, the place that God has me in right now is full of people who are filled with idols. They, they're worshiping idols. So what does he do? He complains on, about it on Twitter, and he goes, no, he doesn't complain about it. He doesn't start talking us versus them. What does he do? He reasoned in the synagogues. He's talking with them. Every day with whoever happened to be there. He didn't say, hey, come to my church and come to this program and, and invite your friends to come watch the professionals speak the gospel. He did it. He reasoned with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace day by day, every day. This is, this is life for him. This is every day with those who happened to be there. 2 Corinthians 10.5, that same apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, we, we Christians, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. There's all kinds of ideologies, pretensions, arguments that sets themselves up against the knowledge of God. With your friends in school, your sphere of influence, some of you guys have family members who are hostile to God. What do we do? We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, in our culture, what are the arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God? In our culture, not overseas, but in, in Western American culture, there's a couple of 
ideologies or philosophies that people hold on to, and you have to be aware of it. It's so hard for it's like uh, trying to explain to a fish that it's wet. It doesn't understand because it's just surrounded by water. So me explaining these to you, these things to you, it's like we're surrounded by it. It's very hard to kind of get a bird's eye view outside of what are the culture's ideologies. And so one of them is called individualism and independence. It's not like this in other countries, but individualism, what does this mean? It's all about me and mine. It's I depend on myself. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm in control. I get to create, or, or we'll say the words, I manifest my destiny. That's individualism. It's all about you and yourself, whatever makes you happy. And the other one is self-actualization is the highest good. So in Christianity, we believe the highest good is to glorify God with our entire lives. Our culture's ideology is, no, 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 the highest good you could do is just to be true to yourself. Self-actualization. And who defines who you are? You do, not God. I need to live my truth the way I define it. This is what our culture will teach you, and, and a lot of times in the church we believe it. So, so how does this ideology, how does this play out on the secular front? When we're talking to unbelievers, people who are hostile to God and, and open about them not being Christians, what do they think about Christianity? They think Christianity is irrelevant, it's outdated, it doesn't have any real answers for today's issues. So if you want to be a Christian, fine, do your church thing with your Christian friends, but leave it out of the, the public discussion where the real stuff is happening. It's irrelevant. What about the Bible? They think that the Bible is an outdated text written by ancient, ignorant people who lived in huts with no technology, no relevance to today's world. Maybe the Bible has some good stories, some, some good principles, but you can't really fully apply it to today's issues. This is what the world will say about the Bible. Okay, well, what about those of us who believe the Bible to be the authoritative final word of God? People like us are narrow-minded, shallow, too black and white for today's complex issues. Today's is too complex. The Bible, uh, it, it doesn't answer those questions, and, and people who only believe in the Bible are narrow-minded. Okay, well, what about our nation's Christian roots? What does our world say about that? Well, yeah, sure. The story is that we were a Christian nation at one point when slavery was active, when women didn't have rights, when minorities were oppressed, when science and technology hadn't, been, hadn't boomed, and before we had any access to information the way we do today. So Christianity is not only outdated and irrelevant, it's hindering our progress. These are the ideologies that our world has. They believe, and we just kind of assume them in our culture. They don't have any real regard for the fact that Christian abolitionists are the ones who freed slaves. They didn't have any uh, regard for the reality that Christian ideas like the equal value and dignity of all people because we're made in the image of God is the thing that sets the captives free. They don't have any regard for Christian thoughts like a fixed ordered universe is the basis for science. We don't live in a chaotic, unpredictable world. We live in a fixed-ordered universe. Why? Because we believe in a God who created the universe. So they don't have these ideologies. So, but it's not just the unbelievers. I'm talking about the secular people, but we're going to see these same ideologies in the church. Christianity in America, we have our roots in Christianity, but we've kind of moved past Christianity. We're in a post-Christian nation. And so there's this idea called moralistic therapeutic deism the heck does that mean? Those are just fancy words for Christians believing that, hey, in the church, uh, sure, God exists. He created and ordered the world. He watches over human life. And God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to one another as taught in the Bible, but also other religions. The central goal of life is just happiness and to feel good about yourself. 
God doesn't need to be particularly involved with your life except for when he's needed to resolve a problem. And then they also teach that good people go to heaven when they die. No, this is not biblical Christianity. No, God wants to save people, not just make them more comfortable on their way to hell. Many of the people who will have objections to the gospel will be professing Christians who believe in this theology. So we have to, what do we do? Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So let me see what we're looking at on time here. Okay, we're, we're good. We got some progress. Okay, so how do we engage? First is we have to see Jesus as being the ultimate example. Okay, we, Jesus is the ultimate example. He's God, uh, he's God the Son. He could have stayed in all of his glory in heaven, but what did he do? He emptied himself and he lived among us. It says in John 1, 14, that Jesus, the word, became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. A lot of Christians hide in their little Christian bubbles and they separate themselves from the world and it's us versus them and that's the, the bad stuff over there. I'm gonna get tainted. It's like, no, no, Jesus himself enveloped himself in this culture. Why? To shine the light that was inside of him and we're supposed to do do the same thing. Christians are not going to be effective if all you do is hang out in your own little Christian bubbles. Now, that does not mean hang out with people who are unbelievers for the sake of partaking in things that are sinful, obviously. But it does mean that you're not going to be effective unless you intentionally have relationships and friendships with people who are far from God. So Jesus is the ultimate example. So some of the pitfalls of answering objections or answering the unbelievers is being blind to cultural norms and presuppositions. If you don't understand everything I just talked about and you don't see that that's what the culture is believing, then you're going to be out of touch. And that's a problem with a lot of older Christians in the church is they are so disconnected from the world that they're just out of touch with reality and the way the world thinks. Another pitfall is just not knowing the arguments. What are the arguments that the world actually has? And a lot of the time, the pitfall is not knowing doctrine. Some people are wanting to be effective for Christ, but they don't even know the word of God. So we know we have to fill ourselves with the word of God. You cannot draw out from an empty well. You have to dig your well before you're thirsty. And so if you fill yourself up and you are a well of knowledge of the word of God, then you can give people something to drink when they're thirsty. So not knowing doctrine or, or having an us versus them mentality. Oh, yeah, look at those unbelievers and and the people who believe separate them is all and it's like no it's not us versus them if you've been saved by the blood of christ it's all of us as humanity we're just beggars who found some bread and we're trying to show other people where to find some bread or or maybe pithy trite short answers like uh, god hates the sin but loves the sinner that's not effective anymore when people identify themselves so closely with their actions they think that, well, you just basically told me God hates me. So, so how do we get engaged? There's three points on the answer, how do we engage? Uh, one is we reason. We reason with people. Acts 17, 2 through 3, as was his custom, Paul went into the, to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. So he, he reasoned with them. He didn't just proclaim truth and say, hey, you either believe it or not. No, no, he reasoned. What does that mean? That word reason is translated, it's the Greek word dialegami, which is where we get dialogue. Dialogue is, is a conversation between two people. 
A monologue is what I'm doing right now. I'm not having a conversation with you guys. I'm speaking. I'm, I'm having a monologue. If I were to get off the stage and engage with you one-on-one, -on -one, now we're dialoguing. We're, conver we're conversing. So that would be reasoning. So it means to discuss, to dispute, to preach, to say thoroughly, or to reason. Now, it doesn't give the picture of passively suggesting. Like, hey, you know, I think Christianity is real. And then people are objecting it. And you're like, oh, you take kind of a, an impish backseat. No, no. He says you, you should engage in those conversations. But here's the thing. When, when you're engaging, you're also going to engage with some people who are just unreasonable. And it's, you're going to fall into a trap if you try to reason with unreasonable people. Anybody ever get in an argument with someone who's just not hearing you? Right? They're, they're being unreasonable, and you're so full of logic, just dripping with logic, and they're just not hearing it. They're being unreasonable. Yeah, you can't reason with unreasonable people. So not only do we reason, the second point is we do debate. Debate. Uh, and, and this is kind of a controversial one in, in Christianity. So, you know, one Christian told me, because I told him this, he said, you shouldn't debate with people. That's the stupidest thing I heard. He was debating with me about not debating with people. It's ironic, right? So we, being in a debate is a biblical thing. Acts 9.29, the apostle Paul talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. Not only did he debate, he debated in such a way that they were trying to kill him. Apparently, the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo that it was a bad witness, according to some people, because there's several times in the book of Acts where he's debating. What does that word debate mean? It means to investigate, to discuss, to refute, to reason, to inquire, to debate. When I first came to the Lord, I had so many questions. Like, how do I know? If I were to put all the religions on the table, how do I know the Christian one is the right one? It doesn't make any sense to me. Or how did, where did God come from? And, and how does it make sense that Jesus is the one who died for my sins? It, it, doesn't the Bible talk about like that everybody should die according to their own sin? I had all of these different questions. And what did I do? I listened to teaching, yeah, but I also listened to debates. Why? Because I could talk to you, and you could give me an answer. I'm like, man, this guy's right. But then I talk to her, and she gives me an answer that's contrary to what he says. I'm like, dang, maybe she's right. But guess what? I get him and her debating. I get to see how arguments, the best arguments, stack up against each other and against cross-examination. So debating is a good, healthy thing we're supposed to do in the church. The church has done this forever, even at least since Acts 9.29. So we reason with people. We converse with them. We dialogue. We debate when needed. When I say debate, I'm not talking about being a jerk. Right? You don't have to be a jerk. You can debate in a loving way. The, the, the third thing is not only do we reason, not only do we debate, but we defend. Now, here's the thing. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, but in your hearts, in your hearts, you need to revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. Always be prepared to give an answer. That means defend. That word give an answer is apologia or where we get apologetics, to give an answer but he says, don't just give an answer. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect. You can get so caught up in a debate with somebody that you're forgetting the battle of their soul, and you're trying to just win the war of the argument. No, no, you're, the, the war is really for their soul. And if you get caught up in the argument, then you're missing the entire point. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. You don't have to be obnoxious or be a jerk. That word defend was a uh, courtroom word for giving a defense for someone who was on trial. So, yes, though we're supposed to be witnesses testifying of what we've seen and heard, the best witnesses are those who are properly informed. And so if you guys don't know your word, if you haven't studied these things and, and looked up answers, Christianity survived over 2,000 years. 
We have the truth on our side. We should not be afraid to explore answers to life's deepest questions, and good answers are out there. So we should not only dialogue, debate, but we should also defend. Now, here's the thing. Culture, no matter all of your best intentions and, and you equipping yourself, you are going to preach the gospel, and you're going to yeah, all right, I'm going to win all my friends now. Everybody's going to believe. No, no, the culture will oppose the gospel. They will oppose it. John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom isn't of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He's like, look, I'm going I'm to speak the truth to everybody. I'm going to reveal Jesus was truth incarnate, and he says they still rejected him. John 15, 19 says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And as it is, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant, that's us, is not greater than his master. None of us are greater than Jesus Christ. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They'll treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. The goal is not for us to be more palatable to the culture. So some of us are like, hey, I, I must be doing it wrong if people are rejecting. No, no, no. We're not supposed to soften the gospel, take the teeth out of the, the knife that's supposed to be sharp. It says the, the word of God is like a sword. We're not supposed to take the sharpness out of it to appease the culture, giving you some sort of a guaranteed way to share the gospel where everybody's going to love you and accept your message. That's not the goal. The goal is to remove unnecessary stumbling blocks and, and, and fully equip us to be as effective as we can in sharing the gospel. Trusting God to do what God is going to do. All right. So what, one of the things that I love to do is, um, and, and this is before I planted a church, before I even got into ministry, I just was so excited to share the word of God with people. And so I took a class on evangelism, like how to preach the gospel. And, and I, I didn't really know much. My testimony, it was not very clearly articulated. And so this guy, he teaches me, he's like, hey, I'm, gonna go, I'm teaching a class on evangelism and we're gonna share the gospel with people on the streets. I was like, all right. So I was in class for like five, six weeks and I, think, I was like, I think I got it. So we go to this park, it's kind of in the inner city and, and I share the gospel and, and I sucked at it really bad. It was really bad. Uh, I didn't, I stumbled over my words. I'm pretty sure I said wrong things. I didn't articulate it. And I left that conversation really discouraged. I was like, man, that didn't go well. Like, how do I do that better? And so what I did was like, like man, he said this. And you know how you're in an argument and then after you leave the argument, you're like, dang, I wish I should have said this. Right? It, it was kind of like that. Well, the more you do this, the more you talk to people, the better you get. It's just like anything else. And so what we started doing is we, we started uh, creating these gospel tracks. And if on your way out, there's a whole pile of them there. Uh, on the, the back of it, there's this URL called winmycity.com. The talk that I'm giving you, there's a longer version of that with actual Q&A where I'm engaging with, uh, with questions from the crowd. Uh, so grab some of these gospel tracks. But this is just an easy way to share the gospel with somebody. And so every time I hand one of these out, it's got the gospel message on the inside. Two-minute warning. Uh, and so when I started sharing the gospel, I started getting these objections. And, and the more you do it, the better you get. So here's the thing that I want to leave you with. I, this prayer that I pray every time when I go out and I evangelize, every time we go out, we go out the first Saturday every month. We go to downtown Fresno, and we're sharing the gospel with all kinds of people, handing out tracts, dealing with objections. But here's the prayer that I pray every time. It's a prayer that I want you to start praying. If you want to write this down, Lord, help me to preach the truth with clarity, conviction, and compassion. Every single word in that prayer is meaningful. Help me to preach the truth 
with clarity, conviction, and compassion. Preaching. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed. Some people are like, hey, just preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. No, the gospel is a message to proclaim. It's necessary to use words. So help me to preach, but I don't want to just preach anything. I want to preach the truth. So let the words of my mouth be true to the word of God. Help me to preach the truth, but I don't want to just preach the truth in a way that is irrelevant. I want to preach the truth with clarity. Help me to speak in words and ways that the people that I'm talking to will understand and relate with. Help me to preach the truth with clarity, but also conviction. I believe there's five types of preaching. You can have superficial preaching where it's just like, you know, hey, God wants to, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and you don't really, it's not deep at all. Uh, there's academics. Some people get so ingrained into, like, the apologetic answers, and they just speak way over people's heads. There's the academic, or there's arrogant, to where you think you know all the answers, and everybody just sees you as kind of, like, combative, and they see you as just being rude. Superficial, academic, arrogant, or dry, meaning, like, I don't know what you're saying, but it doesn't even sound like you believe what you're saying. Like, if I'm in a conversation with somebody, I don't care. If they leave unbelieving, that's totally fine. But they're going to leave that conversation saying, I might not believe what he believes, but I know for a fact he believes what he believes. You don't want to speak in a dry way. You want to speak with clarity, conviction. And then the last thing is compassion. The people that we're speaking to are human beings for whom Christ died. We all share in the same human nature. And Christ loves every single one of us equally. And so not only do we need to preach the truth with clarity and conviction, but we have to see the human and not try to attack the human, but attack the principality and the arguments. We demolish strongholds and arguments that sets themselves up against the knowledge of God, but we don't attack and demolish people. They need to see your love. And he says that they're not going to come to you because they're not going to come to me, Christ. He doesn't say they're going to come to him because of our great apologetic reasoning and all of our debates. He said they're going to come because of our love. We have to have love, and we have to see the people that we're talking to with the eyes of love. And so with that, I'm going to pray a blessing over you. I think you guys got a couple minutes. Maybe I'll take some questions up here for, uh, for some of you guys that might have them before your next session. But Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this group of people. I thank you for the ability that, that we had to, to have this time together. Uh, I pray, Lord Jesus, that every single student, whether it is just one little point or one little nugget that they're leaving this from, I pray, Father, you continue to water that seed. There's, there's a million messages they're going to hear, Father, and if there's one little morsel of truth that they could hold on to, I pray, Father God, that you would continue to water that and grow that seed within them, Father God. I just pray that you would give them the ability to preach the truth with clarity, conviction, and compassion when they're answering the unbeliever. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.